welcome to this, this Africa Noir. Um, that is the monthly seminars that we have, uh, which is arranged by the Norwegian Council for Africa, Fellesrådet for Africa. This event is arranged by the Gender and Equality Group, Chön och Likestillingsutvalget, in uh, the Norwegian Council for Africa. And if any of you are interested in joining uh, the group or uh, some other group in Fellesrådet, you can feel free to talk to me or any of the two here in the front row. Uh, we would love new members in our group. We are very happy to have a very um, strong female panel today. And the one who will be moderating this conversation is Nyasha. And Nyasha is here on exchange from Zimbabwe, and she's working for Asai Ho. And she has worked a lot with students and reproductive and sexual health. Uh, so I think we have a very strong moderator. Okay, um, as Hilda said, my name is Nyasha. And I'm from Zimbabwe, and I'm part of the SIHO exchange program, and I will be the moderator today. And with me, I have Barrett and Shishti, and I will let them introduce themselves, and then we can start the discussion. Good evening. My name is Berit Osteg. Um, I am a physician. Um, I was... In 1994, working for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, with the Cairo Conference, um, because the conference was not just a few days in September, it actually was a lead up to it that went over a number of years. And it was a fa fascinating experience, and I decided to spend the rest of my working life to try to uh, work to cooperate with others to, to put it out into, into real life. So it was really a life changing event for me. Okay. Um, good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is uh, Kersti Aukland. I'm a senior advisor at Sexopolitik. Uh, Sexopolitik is the Norwegian uh, member association of the International Planned Parenthood Federation. And, and we, we kind of um, pushed ourselves into this uh, program a bit as a co-host as well. <laughs> so, so just uh, <laughs> a few sentences about uh, Sexopolitik. So we work with sexual and reproductive uh, health and rights both here in Norway and also internationally. Uh, in Norway, we do have our biggest program on uh, sexuality education, EPSEX material for uh, school. And um, internationally, we do have um, 164 sister organizations all ar around the world, uh, giving service provision and also advocacy uh, for sexual and reproductive rights in their individual countries. Thank you. Thank you, ladies. Um, Barrett, um, I, I would like for you to explain to us um, more on the International Conference on Population and Development in Cairo, the video that we just saw. Could you tell us why it was an important meeting and what was agreed upon at that meeting? Okay. Um, I have a book with with all the decisions and also the five year after the Cairo conference, there was an extra, uh, there was a meeting to follow up. This is extra copy, so if somebody's desperately wanting to, and, and love paper, because of course this is on the internet, but if you want paper, it's I got one copy. Um, it was a bit strange to see the video, because it sounds as if we met in Cairo to stem the population growth. And the, ho the whole the main point about Cairo, the Cairo conference, was that there was a shift in the emphasis. 
there had been population conferences from uh, 64, then 74, 84, and then 94. And they all dealt with population growth uh, with their main emphasis. There was also some discussion on sexual reproductive health, but the big emphasis was on population growth, which we changed in Cairo. So actually, I would, I would, s I would state that the, the, um, the video it does not represent that. Because that was the that was the sweetness of the uh, sweetness of the uh, Cairo conference, because the emphasis had been on numbers, uh, the emphasis had been on just provide family planning, contraception. Women don't understand what is good for them; just push uh, family planning on them. And um, and we had a discussion in this country. I, there was a chronicle in Aftan Posten, which is uh, the main newspaper, and it's normally quite credible. And it was a biologist, and he. He said he was he was dealing with insects, and then he was foreseeing the population growth up to 179 billion people on this earth, mm -hmm. uh, with approximately the same logic as the as the the um, reproduction of insects, as if men and women make the similar kind of <laughs> intellectual um, process in before they have children that the insects do. So, um, but it, this was so. It, this was this fear, you know, that the whole, the whole globe is going to explode. You talk about the the, the population bomb, the population explosion. So it was something that was very dangerous, and it was the ability of women to deliver that was the main threat of development. Mm. So the big shift, and that this is not, it had been discussed before as well to that to care for the individual could actually give a the benefit also in the long run of standing the population increase. But the main the emphasis was caring for the individual. To so to shift the, the perspective from the numbers and to the individual and to the health needs of the individuals. Um, then uh, the, the first controversy, mm -hmm. um, and I came into it with it during the second, uh, the second uh, preparatory committee, because there, are, there were many meetings. There were the preparatory committees where we, uh, committees where we started negotiating the what eventually came out as the program of action. But then there were a series of other meetings. There were expert meetings, there were roundtables, there were regional meetings. Um, and um, uh, those were extremely important to feed into the, to, the, to the process. Also, the NGOs played a major role. And I think uh, one reason for the success of the Cairo conference was that the women's women's um, organizations around the world, and it was called the women's organization, they managed to coordinate, they managed to speak with one voice. Um, that, that I think would be impossible today. It's quite amazing what we managed in 1994, and the fact that it was possible to say, women, women of this world, this is what they want. And that was a very strong, important, uh, important uh, input to the whole process. And also that they were that they understood the process because when you negotiate a text, you have to have it. You know, it's a bit give and take thing. Um, and uh, I think it's important to know the, the 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 particular role. So what was good about it? The good thing about it was that for the first time, um, reproductive health was defined politically. We took a, a definition that uh, WHO had developed, a technical definition of reproductive health, and then it was turned into a political definition of reproductive health. When we did that, the, the, the stumbling block was abortion. So we had to stop the negotiation on the definition of reproductive health and then decide on abortion because that came into, do you see my point? It came into then the definition of, of reproductive health. 
so we had a discussion on, we had definition on reproductive health. Uh, we had um, a definition on reproductive rights, which are not new rights. These are human rights applied on sexual and reproductive health. We also had a definition of sexual, uh, not it was a mention of sexual health. It was not really a proper definition. And then it was a mention of sexuality. Can you can imagine? <laughs> it was a mention. I mean, it, it was a kind of realization that sexuality exists. So it was there. But sexual rights was not, there was not agreement on sexual rights. Um, just as an example of how you have to give and take in such negotiations. And I would like to urge you because um, I, I get a bit disappointed when I see NGOs that I kind of feel that they're bound by the, by the um, consensus in Cairo. And when they talk about deciding freely and responsibly the timing and the number of the children. Deciding freely and responsibly. According to the human rights, you should decide freely, full stop. But then during the negotiation, it was added and responsibly. That's a kind of compromise thing. But now, so I think in order to move it forward, we should talk about deciding freely, full stop. But very often I see even NGOs talking about deciding freely and responsibly. Of course, we don't want people to be responsible, but that's not the point. The, the normative thing should be that you should decide freely, that women, that women and couples should be able to, individuals and couples should be able to decide fr freely, full stop. You see the point? It's so it's, it's and the, the, whole, the whole thing about such a um, program of action is that it's a compromise text, which means it's sometimes difficult to read, um, and sometimes it's not very nice pr and like prose, but the content is fantastic. There's one. There were two areas that were the most controversial and difficult ones, wi wi which we did solve. One was abortion. The other was adolescent uh, sexual health, uh, where there was a huge, huge debate. But I think we got good results. One area there, there was no agreement in the Cairo, um, Cairo program of action was on what is called LGBTIQ, you know, that whole thing, which I tend to call a sexual diversity, because I don't like these acronyms. Um, but there was no agreement on that. Um, and I think the, the um, opposition to the term sexual rights was also about LGBTI uh, or sexual diversity. Um, so the first controversy was over family. And I was... I wasn't young, but I was very naive at the time. <laughs> I was very naive. I couldn't understand what the problem with family was. Um, and uh, it was the Dutch government, they threatened to withdraw from the whole process if there was a thing with the family. Because the family, th these are codes for things. And the code, the family, the family is a code for the patriarchal nuclear family with a husband and wife and children. Um, but we had a family concept which was much wider, and eventually we managed to get a, con a concept of the family which was much wider. Um, but it's it's um, so these are you know <laughs> enormous amounts of, of codes in it. Um, I should also say that this is 1994, and the AIDS epidemic was at its height, and um, and I think in a way that helped us. Uh, it helped us during the negotiations because. Um, it became quite clear early on that AIDS, the epi AIDS epide epidemic was a threat to develop general development. And then we could, we could use that to say, okay, but reproductive health, sexual and reproductive health and rights, that's also a development issue. But I think we could really lean on the understanding that the HIV um, epidemic was a threat to development. 
So it was a, it was a important, it was a crucial time. Um, it was, you know, uh, the, uh, the Berlin Wall had fallen in 89. Um, there was this optimism, we can do everything, we can manage everything. So it, it was a good time in a sense. Um, the, um, the program of action has been extended. It actually went up to 2015, but it has been extended. Um, was it 2015? Suddenly I, yeah, 14, okay, yes, 20 years, you're right, you're right. But it was extended by the General Assembly in the UN because nobody would dare to reopen it. If we start negotiating now, I, I think we will lose a lot. We might be able to get something on uh, sexual diversity, but I think that we might lose a lot looking at the present political situation. Do you think that um, there's any information that was withheld from this conference? Um, discussions or agreements that were made that were not made public? No. no. Because the, the results are public. What happened in the hall is public. What is not public is the strategy that, that led up to the process. Because we would not, I mean, of course, we had discussions between our like minded groups. What can we accept and what can we not accept? There's something we'll absolutely not accept. And this is something that we might compromise on. And of course, you don't want to show that to your opponent. Mm. Okay? Because that is, that is where you come into negotiation. It's, it's a kind of pulling, you know, pulling and pushing uh, um, situation. And then you don't want to show where you are willing to, to compromise on. So, in the, so those discussions uh, were not made public. But everything that happened in the hall is, of course, public. And all the decisions, of course, is public and is publicized. That's the whole point of it. Mm. Shasti, would you like to shed more light um, or mention any specific um, goals that have resulted from this conference to date? Mm. Yeah. Um, I think, as, as Berit uh, was saying, this, this document, even though it's 25 years old, it still, it still stands. It's still got very substantial good... Um, um, goals and objectives in there, uh, and I think it was a, a um, I don't know if a starting point, but a, a but an important point in time to actually kind of facilitate other processes uh, globally and regionally. Uh, so I think what the changes that we've seen, which I will mention a few from, is is both is is due to a further political prioritization and fina financial prioritization or commitments. Um, uh, based, kind of starting almost at the ICPD um, in 1994. So um, I think some of what we've we've seen um, of the, the kind of the, the good progress when it comes to sexual and reproductive um, health is the uh, the big decline in in uh, maternal mortality, mortality uh, internationally globally uh, uh, by 44 percent since the 1990s. And and I guess that was one of the easier uh, areas within the uh, SRHR, which we call it, um, uh, field, because it's mothers and babies. You know, that's the kind of the soft target in a way that everybody can agree on, uh, which I'm sure w was not uh, one of the controversial issues uh, either at the at ICPD. Oh, you don't you don't agree. Of course, I don't quite agree because yeah. it's quite costly to y make it the big deliveries safe. It's is is costly, yeah. and we shouldn't underestimate that. Of course, in principle, yes, it's a s it is nice and sweet, and you know, mothers and babies and all that. But actually, it is costly, and therefore, it does become controversial in in reality. It is costly, but that 
so that links to my other point that it created also um, financial commitment because it's something that um, many donor countries could uh, agree on and could commit to. And global movements on maternal health was also um, uh, launched in the uh, in the 90s and early 2000. Um, but it's it's good, of course. It's it's really really good. Um, then uh, looking at uh, contraceptives, access to family planning, as it is uh, called here in in the call of action um, pro uh, program of action, which we now like to say uh, contraceptives, <laughs> access to contraceptives. It's not always that you're planning a family; uh, it's just you're planning your life. Um, uh, so we have seen some progress there as well, uh, but uh, not as much, uh, not as strong as as we wanted. And even though the program of action doesn't really have a specific target on figures, but in 2012 a global initiative called Family Planning 2020 was started, and they set a target of 120 more, uh, 120 million more women should have access to con modern contraceptives by uh, 2020. So from 10 years, 2012 to 2020. I mean, uh, they've managed to um, increase this by 46 million women, and that is not taking into consideration the population growth as well. So the percentage growth hasn't been that strong, actually. Uh, so there is, there is still a lot more to do there. I just want to quickly mention that uh, Mozambique is uh, one of the countries on the African continent that has uh, gained strongest um, progress when it comes to access to contraceptives. And, and of course, there are many reasons to that. Um, uh, but, but I think one, one of them is, is that, of course, commitment by the, by the national government. And, and uh, today, it's free of charge for everybody to access contraceptives. And they've also implemented um, policies around access to health services for young people uh, and combining them with schools like uh, health corners where they can actually access uh, contraceptives. So that's, that's, that's part of the picture. One more uh, area which I think I need to mention it's, is uh, safe abortion or abortion rates. So I think um, um, we've seen, even though it's still a, it's a difficult <laughs> kind of controversial topic still, and uh, in the international negotiations, the UN negotiations that are kind of building on this from 94, it is even, mo it is even more uh, difficult today than it was in 94. I think that is uh, in these days we can't even mention it. It's just kind of shut down. Um, but still, we s if we look at the ground uh, level or the on the um, national level, we see positive changes in the legal uh, on the legal side. Uh, so it has been uh, the laws have been opened up. So a broader access. There are still limitations and there are still a lot of barriers, and particularly on stigma, uh, and of course also on, uh, legal um, legal barriers in in many countries still. But there is a progress, and I think what we've seen um, very good progress on is the um, reduction of deaths uh, due to unsafe abortions. Um, it's been it's been halved or around that over the past ten years, uh, from around forty thousand till twenty thousand, um, uh, which is really good. Um, and part of that is. Um, 
access to information, access to uh, medicines, uh, to perform medic uh, medicated operations, <laughs> uh, which you can which you can actually do yourself, um, um, and and um, uh, and also the legal changes in in many countries. Um, was I going to say one more thing? Um, uh, yeah, but what we see is that um, uh, the uh, one argument that you hear is that, uh, okay, criminalization or, or uh, barriers to access or, or legal provisions not to access abortion will is part of preventing peop uh, people from having abortions. So it's it's choosing something else or making the uh, prevalence rate um, uh, go down, and that is actually not the case. Uh, in the countries, it's uh, there is very little difference actually between the countries uh, with kind of so-called progressive laws um, uh, or liberal laws, or <laughs> what you should say, uh, and those countries with very strict laws. Prevalence rates are almost the same, but unsafe abortions are much higher in the countries with the, with the strict laws. So there is still, uh, there's still a, a, a long way to go there. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so you mentioned about uh, Mozambique having very good progress mm -hmm. in terms to access. And do you think there's any role that the political parties in Mozambique played um, and the government's willingness to contribute to contraceptives and knowledge on sexual mm. reproductive health rights. Mm. Do you think the government had strong will for this or it's just the people and NGOs? <laughs> oh, wow, a difficult question. Um, uh, well, uh, of course, it, it must be a combination because it's the, uh, the government that are, are uh, sitting on, on the laws in a way. So, so but I think... Um, a few a few weeks back, we visited our sister organization in Mozambique, and we also met with an, a civil society network there, um, who has been working to change the abortion law in in Mozambique since the 90s. So it was liberalized in in Mozambique in um, 2015, and then operationalized in 2017. So now you can actually access abortion based on on um, on um, social indications and economic indication mental on demand yeah yeah okay. it's on demand yeah um, with some limitations though but <laughs> um, uh, and and the civil society organizations m was played a very crucial role in that work so they gathered evidence what is the situation so this is also linked to the maternal uh, maternal mortality because what they used and which we see in many countries is the arguing of that this is and which is correct of course that this is is um, preventing uh, deaths and it's kind of preserving life um, the women's lives um, and and uh, and also finding out the the opinions in this society uh, people not really knowing about the the legal situation and the argument that well, these laws, these are not really our laws. It's not the Mozambican laws. These are the Portuguese laws. These are the, you know, colonial laws. Why should we continue to have them? So that, that was also, you know, and this combination of arguments uh, that they used to be able to change that. I mean, it was a long process and several rounds in parliament and court, 
but but it uh, yeah. Mm. Could I add something there? Because mm. what <coughs> an interesting thing that happened in Cairo was that we saw this mm -hmm. defense for these old um, laws, abortion laws that were actually from the colonial powers, like the British law from 1861, which is still um, is still functioning in many places. The, the laws from the Napoleon time in the French, previous French colonies. And now we s as then we saw the representatives of those countries fiercely defending those laws. And every attempt to discuss the change in law was seen as neocolonialism. But they see the paradox that they were actually defending the laws from their previous colonizing powers. And every discussion on that was mm. said as, as neocolonialism. Um, so in the Cairo government, there's no appeal to revise laws. That actually came one year later, and I'll give an example of how things happen. I was at the time in the Global Commission on Women's Health, and together with me was the pri princess, of princess Basma of Jordan. Uh, so we had fierce discussions in the Cairo process to, uh, to appeal to countries to liberalize the law. This is a very sore point, especially for countries that have been colonized, because um, Deciding a law is something that the, the it's, it's something national, okay? So it's the it's the people that we elect to make the laws. So dis to discuss to say that sh sh countries should decide that should um, change their laws is a very sore point. Um, Princess Basma, um, because the very many of the Arab countries are very much against this push for changing the laws. So Princess Basma went to all the Arab countries, spoke to the heads of the of, of the states the presidents and the king of uh, Morocco. And when they came to uh, Beijing a year after the women's conference, actually they decided that countries should be, an appeal to country to revise their laws. So this, you know, to see how these things function and to see princess, you know, sometimes you think royalty is just rubbish, but if you have the power and you use it for the, for the good of the people, it can actually have an enormous impact. So, um, but this whole thing about laws is a very sore point. And we also had to, we had to decide a few uh, principles in Cairo. And one of the principles um, is the following. <coughs> the implementation of the recommendation contained in the program action is a sovereign right of each country, consistent with national laws and development policies, with full respect for the various religious and ethical values and cultural backgrounds of its people and in conformity with universally recognized international human rights. So you see this kind of compromise between the respecting the national uh, situation and the culture and respect for human, human uh, rights, which could be a huge difference. But it's kind of, it's, it's a very typical compromise language. So um, in regards to sexual reproductive health rights, uh, we were discussing earlier on about stigma that comes with discussing about abortion, that comes with discussing about contraceptives. How do we think we can curb these stigmas? For instance, I come from Zimbabwe, and just the thought of talking about sex is taboo, even in families or with friends. How do you think you know, countries and people can discuss these issues without having that stigma attached to it? I'm a strong believer in knowledge. Because I do think, I mean, sex, sexuality is taboo everywhere. Even in this country, we have taboos related to, because mean, which means we have the rules about how to talk about sex, with whom, and what time, etc. 
Um, and there's so much hidden. And talk about abortion. If you look at the world, uh, women have an average one abortion through their lives in globally. In this country, it's, it's every third woman who through her life has an abortion. So it's a, it's a very common experience to have. But still, it's kind of stigmatized. You messed with your life and you rejected motherhood or whatever, you know, all these, all these um, things that women should not be, you know, and, and to be, you should have. In this country, I think it's very important to have control over your life. Women in this country, young women especially, they should have control over their lives. And if they mess with that, we don't talk about being, un being unlucky. Because yeah, I think if a, if a girl at 16 has one intercourse and she becomes pregnant, she's unlucky. But we don't talk about that. She's, you know, she has done something bad and it's also a cause for always the girl's fault, of course. Men just have to uh, react to their uh, needs and then women have to, yeah. You see, the, I mean, there's a, there's a lot, of, lot of thing there. So it's, uh, but I do think the kind of, normalizing it in a sense that showing this is normal behavior and also the, this idea that that um, uh, sex is only happening in marriages mm. um, because we know it's not and we just need to, to get the facts on the table and to find ways to talk about it openly and relax and breathe with your stomach and <laughs> you know not this kind of uptight um, uh, talking about it all the time and then of course teach children from the from the uh, very small ones, um, and I think it's it's, it's possible, mm. but stigma is still there. It's and I think stigma comes in different ways because I think in many African countries, having an abortion it means that you reject motherhood, which is a bad thing. Um, and uh, at my age, I'm always called mama in Africa, because that's that's a polite way of talk talking to an adult woman. You're supposed to have children. So, uh, so I think the stigma in Africa can be to reject motherhood, but in this country the stigma is different. So there's stigma everywhere, but the stigma changes, and I think we need to, to come to grips, grips with it. But I, 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 I really strongly believe in knowledge. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I of course I, I agree with you, and I, and I think what in in sex and politique we we kind of have a saying that whatever the question is, the answer is comprehensive sexuality education. Mm. <laughs> so I I. Yeah, we, we really we really believe that uh, that that is one way of addressing it, particularly in the school. Everybody is supposed to go to school. That that you know, it's a system that you go through, and it's an um, uh, it's an intervention to actually open up for for broader discussion about norms. What are the norms? Why are they there? Um, yeah, and but I also want to mention uh, a second point because which I think is important, is that leaders also start talking about it. Whether it be abortion or sexuality or contraceptives or, or whatever, because they set an example by not talking about it or by talking negatively about it. Uh, and of course they might have their own uh, I don't know, opinions, but, but at the same time, if the at least they should be able to address it in relation to their legal situation in the country. So what we s see, which is on a, a kind of in a, in a different context, but in, in negotiations, um, what we see is that many countries don't really speak out about the situation or the, the, the legal uh, situation in their own country. So if, if abortion is legal, they don't, they don't want to mention it in the international conferences. So what does that say? Okay, it's legal, but you don't want to talk about it. Why? Why is that? So, so, and and that 
tells uh, people something, that it is something, it's a service that we have, but at the same time, hmm, maybe it's not so, um, yeah, it's not something that you, you really feel confident uh, about. Can I add something about mm. from, from about Mozambique? Because I think Mozambique is very interesting if in terms of how things are changing. Mozambique had a Minister of Health who was a gynecologist and the President who was a gynecologist. Um, and of course they were very upset with women dying from unsafe abortions. Um, and what they did uh, under Francisco Songani, who was then the Minister of Health, is that the Minister of Health sent out guidelines to health staff. And if they followed the guidelines, you were actually breaking the law. Um, but of course, um, in such a situation, we'd never punish a person who break th broke the law. And then that was actually the first step of legalizing and having, having abortion on demand in, in Mozambique. It was the f third country on the, on the African continent to have, uh, we're focusing on Africa now, <laughs> to have abortion on demand. The first country on the African continent, not sub-Saharan, but on the African continent, actually Tunisia. Which about six years before we had we had abortion on demand in Norway, they had abortion on demand in Tunisia, with the reason was guess it was Islam. They said Islam does not discriminate against women. Isn't that interesting? So they're actually using Islam to introduce abortion on demand, way before we had it in this country. The second country to introduce abortion on demand was South Africa. As part of doing away with apartheid, they, did, they said we want to do away with all kinds of discrimination between blacks and whites, between men and women, between heterosexual and homosexual. And part of the discrimination against women was to restrict abortion laws, to have restrictive abortion laws. And the third country was actually Mozambique. So it's quite interesting. And then other countries have liberalized, but not to the full, not, not, not so that it's, it's on demand. But it's quite interesting to see those processes that countries go through when they liberalize the law. And then, of course, like in Mozambique, where, uh, where knowledge was so important. But imagine, you know, that the Minister of Health actually produced guidelines in how health staff could break the law. Is that interesting? And you can only do that for certain a certain period of time, and then, of course, the law will change eventually. Either they will be sacked and, you know, uh, out of office, or they will have to liberalize the law. True. Interesting. You mentioned, Spirit, um, about knowledge, the importance of knowledge, and... Shesti, you mentioned about norms and societal pressures and things like that. Um, coming back to the conference, do you think, um, or would you like to share with us which African countries took lead um, in this conference and have they, you know, stepped up to their promises since '94, if you know? Um, yes, I had to go back, you know, in my in my own uh, memory, um, and. My recollection is what Botswana was actually the most progressive country in the negotiation, Botswana, during the negotiations. Um, but there was one person who was extremely important, that was Fred Sai, who was who's an, um, an a, a OBGYN from Ghana. And he was actually the chairperson of uh, one of the preparatory committees. And, uh, and he was very brave. He went, you know, as far as you can as a chairperson in such a negotiation. And I remember the, um, the, uh, the, uh, the poor, poor ambassador from Malta. Malta has a complete ban on abortion, not even to save the woman's life. The only country in Europe that has a complete ban is Malta. And, uh, and um, I remember Fred Sai was chairing the meeting. 
when the Maltese ambassador said something wishy-washy about um, being Habit having legal illegal requirement for treating abortion complications after the abortion happened. And then Fred Sy was very upset and he said, can you or can you not treat abortion complications? Just say yes or no. And the poor ambassador said, oh, uh, I have to check with the, with the, with the capital. <laughs> and everyone was going, oh. <laughs> so then when we, this was the preparatory committee, so when we came to Cairo, the ambassador of Malta took the floor and said, I want to state very clearly that my, my government um, see, uh, accepts that every woman who has had an abortion and has a complication can have treatment. So that was when, when we had that one in place. So Fred Sy was extremely important. Fred Sy was the, uh, the president of IPPF, which is for sex and politics. By the way, I'm the chairperson of sex and politics here. Um, so he was the president of IPPF. Uh, he was the uh, advisor to the, to the president of Ghana. And of course, he, as a well-respected African, chairing a meeting and going, I mean, doing things that you normally don't do in such polite um, environments, uh, was extremely important to, to give an African voice. So I think maybe that was more important even than the country kind of, kind of being, being in the forefront. It's a bit strange that because now Zambia is very active and very progressive. Uh, and, and also South Africa at the time was very important. This was in 94, just before the fall of apartheid, we knew what was coming. And so the South Africans were also very outspoken um, and, and very, very supportive. Um, but I would say Botswana, South Africa, and then the person, <laughs> the Fred Sy from Ghana. Um, can you imagine? S it's he's, he's, a, he's a very short guy, but with a very charismatic um, voice. And and he was so sometimes you know one person can be very important. Mm. Mm. That's good. Mm. That's yeah. very good. Um, so I wanted to ask you, Sheshti, about um, the ethics of history and the movements that are going on and the current laws that have been passed recently. So, for instance, the gag law. Mm, do you want to talk more about that and how the ethics of mm. that um, mm. rule and? you know, the work mm. that you've been doing, how mm. it's affecting the work mm. now. Mm. Um, I, I just want to take a few seconds and, and mention um, a very, very important um, another plan of action, which is the Maputo Plan of Action, which, uh, which uh, first came in 2005 um, after an, uh, an agreement between Minister of Ministers of Health in Africa and which is actually defining access to sexual and reproductive health and rights. They actually spell it out, the full, uh, they kind of, yeah, they alternate between us, uh, yeah, different v versions, but, but it's, it is a very good document. And um, I think we, we, we need to remember those regional agreements on a regional level, because I think the global level can only do so much, but on the regional level, you kind of, among your peers, and and your maybe you have a more similar situation context in the in the in in the region in the among the countries, so uh, and it is kind of closer to home, so you feel more committed to it as well. So I think that has been a very very important uh, document for progress on the African continent. Okay, so um, so that was the re back to the regional and then up to the uh, global level again and the power of donors or the po power of money actually uh, so um, 
because what I mentioned earlier is was the importance also of financial commitment to actually uh, implement uh, um, the improved services and access. And and what we see uh, now is that I mean the U.S. Uh, USA is the largest uh, donor within health, global health, and so whatever they do will uh, have great consequences, positively or negatively. Uh, so they've been a, a very strong uh, contributors to uh, contraceptives and uh, global health and maternal health. Uh, abortion has never been something that they have um, uh, funded, um, neither under um, uh, Republicans or, or Democrats. Uh, but there is one specific law that the Republicans um, uh, instated in 1984 with Ronald Reagan called then um, the Mexico City policy or the global gag rule, which is it, it's um, um, yeah uh, commonly known as. So what happens is that every time uh, there is a uh, um, uh, Republican government, they reinstate this law, and every time there is a Democratic government, they uh, withdraw it. So what it does is that they say that uh, no organization, international organization, can receive funding from the U.S. Uh, if they also give information about abortion, if they advocate for abortion, or if they give abortion services. Even if they use completely other money, either from Norway or from their own fundraising, uh, they are not allowed. And they have to sign onto a contract um, saying that we will not do this. We will not even mention abortion. Um, and and um, so what happened now when Trump uh, came into power is that he expanded this to the whole um, um, development budget. Um, uh, and and so it, it's it's affecting. Uh, so one of our IPPF uh, is one of the uh, organizations, a global organization that don't sign on to this. So IPPF uh, lost uh, around 100 million US dollars. Um, and then individually, these our sister organizations often also have direct funding from the US through embassies and others. Um, they also never sign on to it. So they lost a lot of money. Uh, our sister organization in Mozambique, since we're talking about Mozambique now as an example, Amudefa, um, uh, lost uh, around two-thirds of their funding. Uh, they had to, uh, yeah, half, half of their staff, they had to let go. Uh, they had to close 10 of their 20 youth uh, uh, clinics. And so it's, of course, directly affecting the services that they are giving and the work that they are giving, the strength of the organization, but it's also affecting uh, the collaboration between organizations. Um, so when we visited uh, Mozambique a few weeks back, we met with one of the organizations, big health uh, service or health organization, uh, civil society organization uh, in Mozambique that signed on to it. So often, Many organizations don't really have a choice. Uh, that's how they feel it, at least, um, because they most of the funding might come from the U.S. So it's either you sign on or you die. So you you end uh, your services. And and um, so the thing is that these organizations collaborate a lot. 
so they are now not allowed to uh, refer their clients to our sister organization. So they can e not even use the services of the other organizations. So it's so so that's one thing. What how it is inflicting on all levels, from what they can say, from what they can do, from whom they can collaborate with, and of course this is affecting access for um, young people and adults, in the particularly in the rural areas where the options are not that many. Spirit, would you like to add on? Um. <coughs> You know, the, the U.S. Is, is interesting in many ways. They have the Helms Amendment to their um, development law, which says that they cannot fund abortion. So that's a law which the president cannot change. What the president can change is this um, presidential order, um, which they is very symbolically are doing the first day in office. You know, the, f the, f the um, President Trump, the first day in office, or the second, it was a Monday, I think, that was installed. And now in a third day in office. Yeah, yeah. But very, very early, so it's, it's a kind of, and Clinton, very early, repealed it, etc. Um, the global gag rule cannot be applied to U.S. organizations. And the reason for that is that um, the, the, um, uh, the First Amendment to the Constitution is the freedom of speech. This, this is, an afflict uh, this, this is um, actually banning the freedom of speech, because it's, it's talked about what can you and what can you not say to people. So they cannot apply that to the to the U.S. NGOs because then they're under the Constitution, but they use it for the foreign NGOs, the non-U.S. non-U.S. NGOs, because they, although they should be bound by their human rights, because freedom of speech is also human right, but they don't care so much about the human rights as they care about the Constitution. So it's it's a really a tricky situation. And of course, the result uh, the, the the result can be more abortions um, and more deaths. So uh, this is what they call pro-life, mm. but actually it kills a lot of women, mm. uh, and we are very worried about it. Uh, on the other other side, it's like like Kerstin is saying, the liberalisation of abortion laws combined with better access to medication abortion is drastically reducing uh, deaths from abortion. But you know, it is a difficult situation. Um, so it's kind of what the end result will be, we don't know yet. Because um, I was reading an article uh, in The Guardian um, that Melinda and Bill Gates mm. were talking about the importance of the government funding. Mm. It's the most <coughs> in any form of funding. And at the same time, philanthropic work can only com complement the work that the governments are doing. But it's a big gap that's been created by this gag rule. And it's very hard for philanthropy to step in because there's been a huge void and you can see there's evidence of um, people dying, most women dying from unsafe abortions. For instance, in the Philippines, mm -hmm. there has been the bitter herb um, and concussions for abortion that are mm -hmm. killing plenty women there. So I'm just wondering, do you think there's any way that um, the Norwegian government or uh, Norwegian parliament can talk about mm -hmm. it, seeing it's also uh, something that's being debated in your parliament mm -hmm. with your minister of um, development and what's his take on uh, this issue? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, what is also important to mention in, in 2017 when this um, this was uh, signed into, into um, uh, 
floor again in, in by Trump, uh, you, you had a quite immediate reaction actually from European governments led by the Netherlands. And, and Norway joined them, <laughs> jumped onto, onto the wagon and, and raising funds to uh, counteract uh, some of the, uh, the consequences, the possible consequences, or the consequences that we knew would come because we have experience with the global gag rule from before, so we know what will happen. Um, so I think that uh, several governments in, in Europe um, did commit a bit more to sexual and reproductive health uh, and rights, which is good. But of course, it's, it's a drop in the ocean at the same time uh, because you can't really, uh, as I mentioned, it's not only about the, the funding, uh, but it's about the whole the network and the collaboration that you've built up over so many years and suddenly it's just ripped apart. Um, so yes, our sister organization in Mozambique uh, managed to retrieve some funding from, from other donors, uh, which was good, but they're not back at the same level. Uh, so their services are uh, weakened, their, their impact has weakened. Um, um, yeah, so, so the, yeah. Uh <laughs> They've kind of done some, but of course, we as civil society always think they can do a bit more. <laughs> yeah. so Maybe we should also um, comment on the use of human rights, mm. because there are several human rights instruments. One is the routine reporting that every country has to do in, in, in relation to all the conventions that they ratify. And then it's the universal periodic review, where countries review each other where you have the whole range of human rights that they are, are assessing. And actually, when last time I checked it, Norway was the country that most often had, had um, commented on lack of access to, to safe abortion as an infringement on human rights. And I was a bit proud to be Norwegian at the time. Um, I'm a little bit worried now, and I would like to say that within these walls, because we have a new minister, I don't know where he's where standing on this, because he is from the Greek Christian Democratic Party and we know their view on abortion. Uh, we have previously also had a Minister of Development Cooperation from the, from the Christian Democrats um, and she said we cannot change the policy every time we change the, the government. If not, we'll create Texas. You know, Texas in Norwegian with a, with a small t, it means chaos. So sh she said that we can't create ca Texas. Um, I don't know if the new uh, minister will do anything regarding that. Uh, and I'm a bit worried, because I think we have a proud history in terms of pushing other countries and using human rights. And human rights is, is a very strong instrument. Uh, and of course, it's extremely important that, that NGOs are picking up when their country is, being, is reporting on the human rights and, and to, to use human rights to push governments. So um, that is a good thing that Norway has done, actually. Ireland, they are so happy with us because mm. it was their support, our support came at a very crucial time in their process when they were able to organize the, the whole situation on abortion in Ireland. So, mm. but even the US, we have been reprimanding for in, ter in terms of human rights. I think that's uh, interesting. <coughs> yeah. Just a very quick comment on what you said. Um, the government and the government's responsibility, and not only the the donor government or the, but also the government within the individual countries, um, which which I think um, so the the global gag rule does not um, 
uh, cannot be applied uh, on funding directed to government from from state to state, uh, from the US to the government of Mozambique, for instance. Uh, so they, they cannot say that Mozambique must uh, start, uh, change their law uh, unless we want to give them money. So, so, so that's kind of a, an exception to their, <laughs> to their rule, uh, which is good. Um, but of course, you, 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 of course you, you have diplomatic uh, um, uh, conversations and money have, there's power, comes power with money. So when the policies within the donor country changes, it would one would think that it also affects the the dialogue and and the uh, that you have with the with the with the countries. But for now, that is at least the case that the governments can go on with their with with their policies. But what we see is that they need a good collaboration with civil society to implement their laws. And, and we see that's something which you see here in Norway as well. I mean, we need to collaborate. We need to stand in this together. So if civil society is weakened and, and, and gagged, then it will also impact on the government's um, uh, ability to implement their own uh, laws. Thank you. Thank you for the informative discussion. So now we're going to open the floor. Um, it's not a question and answer session, it's a discussion. So feel free to ask questions and at the same time, feel free to tell us your thoughts and your opinions. It's a four-walled room, so no one's going to arrest you for saying anything. So feel free. Um, any questions or contributions? Uh, my name is Catherine. Thank you for the interesting conversation. I just have a quick question really and about Mozambique. I was just wondering if neighboring countries, women are able to go there and get abortion on demand uh, for free or do they have to pay for it? And if you can also see if there's a social like, class difference uh, also in Mozambique and in the other countries uh, who has liberalized their law. If you can say something about that, thank you. Yeah, uh, I mean now in Mozambique, in, in principle, uh, everybody should be able to to access. Uh, but uh, from for other countries, I mean in general, a lot of people in Africa, I guess you can also confirm that are going to South Africa, if they have the means, if they have the money to do that travel, to make that travel. And that's another point which I didn't mention earlier. So there has been great progress on, on many, or there have been some <laughs> progress on many areas, but it's also very une um, uneven and unequal, uh, depending on, on, um, on your uh, geographical uh, location, on your socioeconomic status, uh, and related to social norms. So obviously, yeah, if you're a poor woman living in the countryside, you would often have less access uh, than a more wealthy woman living in an urban setting. So I think um, we've discussed this many times, and maybe <laughs> particularly when it comes to abortion, I mean, if, if you've got the means, uh, if you've got money, you, you will be able to find uh, a safer way around it. Uh, so the, the challenge is, of course, for the general population and for people with um, less financial means. Mm. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know. Derek, do you have some comments? Absolutely. I'm very glad that you brought it this up because there are social differences in most areas in health, in tuberculosis, in heart disease, whatever. But there's no area where there's such an enormous social difference as in access to abortion. There's an enormous social difference, which means if you have the money, you can either travel to a country where you have can have illegal abortion or you can have a safe illegal abortion wherever you are because there's always the health staff who are, who are willing to provide it, but it can be very, very costly. Um, and even, even when women come with abortion complications, they often have to pay a lot and a lot more than for other medical issues. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, there's now research showing that women who are having abortion complications are pushed into poverty, further into poverty. First, they have an unsafe abortion because they can't afford a safe abortion, um, and they can't afford to go to a country where there's safe abortion uh, and legal abortion. And then when they have uh, abortion complications, and we know there's a lot of corruption in health systems, and then they ha often have to pay a lot and a lot to, uh, to, get, uh, to get the treatment. And um, there's now proof that country uh, that families are pushed further into poverty and even starve to death because of uh, the cost of abortions. And I think that is the, the way we have to go forward. If you look at the Sustainable Development Goals, there's a lot, lot more emphasis on equity than in the previous, the Millennium Development Goals. Uh, and human rights are also um, uh, much more prominent in the Sustainable Development Goals. And if there's one thing you should know about human rights, human rights is complicated, but the headline is non-discrimination. So I think with the Sustainable Development Goals and this m really emphasis on uh, inequality, uh, I think we have good arguments, and maybe we should use that more than talking about sexual morality, because the world can never and should never dis agree on sexual morality. That's an issue for families and friends, and you know, but not for the, for the global community. But the global community is very concerned with social inequity. So I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up. And if you look at the, the women who go into prison for their abortions, it's, it's, it's really horrific. And I guess you know about uh, El Salvador, when because women who have a spontaneous abortion or a miscarriage, they cannot prove that they didn't start it themselves. And some get 30 years imprisonment for delivering a dead child for, for, for or, or, or having a spontaneous abortion. It's really horrific. And if you look at the court cases of these women, it's appalling. They can't afford to have a defense lawyer, so they can't defend themselves. It's really, so the social inequity is, is enormous in this area, absolutely enormous. And gender inequalities. Yeah, I mean, for instance, um, in Zimbabwe, the civil societies have reported that most people or most boyfriends in Zimbabwe can fund uh, their girlfriend who's gotten pregnant by mistake to go to South Africa to get an abortion as opposed to doing it in Zimbabwe. So you find boyfriends or husbands are willing to sacrifice a flight ticket or a bus ticket to South Africa, as opposed to then you know, doing it in Zimbabwe or doing it unsafely in Zimbabwe. Yeah. It will comfort me when I sit here. <laughs> I was afraid to come too far. Okay, uh, uh, thank you so much for this discussion. I think for me it's uh, it's very educative, and um, I want to admit that this is the first time I'm uh, hearing such a discussion and that there was uh, a conference in Cairo in 1994 about uh, these issues. Uh, I just want to find out, because I want to believe that the main objective 
is to try and uh, keep the, the population growth at a uh, raw balance. Is that so, or that's not the case? Uh, maybe if you can answer me that so that I could ask my follow-up question. I think leading up to 1994 in the Cairo Conference, the main emphasis was to stem population growth. Um, and then it was a combined um, realization that um, you cannot do it just by pushing family planning uh, or contraceptives on people. Uh, and secondly, also that it was a concern for reproductive health and sexual health. And then also tapping into the, 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 the uh, AIDS uh, epidemic, you know, realizing that sexual health is an important issue. So that combined. But if you look at Africa, actually, I, because I checked now with the regional conference in Africa uh, before the, the 1994 conference, which there, was a much there was more emphasis on population growth and stemming of population growth in Africa than in the other regional conferences which I can understand because the, the, the um, fertility rate is much higher in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, than other countries. And now then, of course, with drought and, and all the other issues that you have in Africa. It is more an issue in Africa. But globally, uh, the, the big turning point in Cairo was to not emphasize population stemming uh, population growth so much. Um, and then, of course, you say, but if you provide people with means to defend on and protect their sexual reproductive health, then automatically you will also have lower fertility, which will then stem the, the uh, population growth. Right, another question. Yes. It, it's, it's a complicated answer, I yes. realize that. Uh, yes, anyway, thank you. Uh, my question then is, uh, uh, developed countries uh, often play as a role model to developing countries. Do you think that uh, developed countries have, have done enough to to help the develop, uh, developing countries to keep this problem? I guess those of us who have spent um, some decades um, in development assistance would say no. Um, if not, we wouldn't have spent this all these years working on it. So, so the answer is no. Yeah, yeah, no, I think, <laughs> I, think I, I will definitely agree to that as well. And I think that is, is also, one of the areas with a little bit, uh, I don't know if I would say controversial, but a discussion around when it comes to this global negotiations, you know, what what role, what kind of commitment should um, uh, the the kind of the, the uh, how do we define now, the richer countries or the donor countries or the, yeah, well, um, okay. We have some development studies students here, so maybe they have <laughs> they can advise us now of the correct terms. So, um, so what role? What 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 is their responsibility uh, in this, and what is the common responsibility? At the same time, what we see now within the the global health um, um, area and and uh, development area as in in general is a, a much strong more s a stronger focus on on um, government's um, own commitments, uh, own um, uh, funding commitments. So more uh, domestic funding, as it's called, should be raised, you know? So it should be a more kind of an, um, yeah, this that they should add to the, to the, to the, um, 
contribute yeah to the basket or yeah um so kind of yes and no in a way <laughs> thank you uh, very interesting uh, all three of you um, I have two questions. The first is you talk about, uh, you say knowledge, you say education. Um, but my question is then, how do you get that knowledge and education through to the local communities? Um, uh, as you say in Zimbabwe, this is taboo, and you say it's the same all over the world, but you have some maybe countries where it's more taboo and where even the religious leaders and the teachers in the schools and other community leaders don't want to talk about it. How do you then reach them with this information to also spread it? And then uh, my second question is seeing this attack on women's uh, reproductive and sexual rights all over the world, even here in Norway, how do we mobilize to fight against it? <laughs> okay, uh, so, so first on the... Um uh, education, how do we kind of uh, reach out to every corner and every every kind of group and make everybody uh, aware and start discussing uh, these issues that can be difficult? I think we have very many good examples that it is possible. And I mean, people are people, people change. And um, I think you have to address it from many different, um, in many different ways and, and different kind of levels, uh, so to speak. I mean, we have faith-based organizations that uh, are, are um, uh, kind of on a, I don't know if I like this progressive uh, words, but okay, like let's say progressive then in a way when it comes to sexual and reproductive rights, uh, which, which have had some uh, good um, success in, in facilitating these discussions because it's, it's very, uh, with with faith-based uh, or faith leaders and faith organizations in different countries. Um, because it's about having, in a way, a common language to start with, and then you can you can build from that. Um, so, so that's one aspect, and that goes to everybody. I mean, it's, it's about youth organizations, so youth speaking with youth and, uh, you know, and women's organizations with women's organizations, all of this. Uh, but I think also on a global level, what we also see is um, uh, the UN system has an important role to play. I mean, they collaborate uh, directly with the governments um, in, in uh, each country. And um, UNESCO, which is the UN organization on uh, culture and what is it called again? Culture something, 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 um, uh, which is an education. Uh, so, so they have produced guidelines for comprehensive sexuality education, which they are now starting to uh, implement uh, in collaboration with governments. For instance, in Ghana is, uh, is doing that, uh, revising their own their national curriculum based on the guidelines here with civil society and boards. Um, and Zambia has done the same. Um, so, uh, Mozambique, again, they have actually uh, stated in their uh, laws that uh, um, you every school have to give sexuality education. So I think we have to address it from uh, in, in different ways um, and, and both start facilitating those discussion on a very kind of local small level but also on a more structural level and now I've forgotten the yeah that was the women's the mobilizing okay I'll leave that to afterwards <laughs> uh, yeah. um, the reason why I mentioned Tunisia 
uh, and the use of Islam to permit uh, and to secure um, legal abortion on demand there was that we tend to think that all religions are against women, against uh, sexual health, against sexuality, but that is not so. And we should really appreciate all the discussions going on within the, uh, the uh, different religious systems. Um, and uh, so, so I, th I think, but it's important that it comes from inside. I think it's very hard from, from outside to change that. But a lot of discussions are taking place and uh, that should be supported. Yeah, um, and and of course, the, the reason why I mention knowledge is that I'm that's what I'm working on. But I mean, it's a whole range of things. If you look at this country, I think we we, we have a very fortunate history in this country. We were among the first countries in the world to reduce maternal mortality dramatically. Um, together with Denmark, Sweden, and the Netherlands, we were really we really way before other countries, way before England, way before the US, we reduced maternal mortality by having midwives, by having good researchers who knew, who could, who could guide, um, guide the, the health staff. We had very little competition between doctors and midwives that in other countries have really cost a lot of women their, their lives because of the rivalry. We've had fantastic writers, novelists, um, Ibsen's play, A Doll's House, is played all over the world. Mm. Um, we have a fantastic history, a combination of, of good, uh, good um, or and brave politicians uh, and our foremothers and forefathers who were abused and screamed at and, you know, and they, were, they were continuing and continuing with at a huge cost. We have a fantastic history that we can lean on and I think it's important to preserve that. And that was why I was extremely encouraged now with the minute changes in abortion laws that, have been that, that I, I suggested. In terms of numbers, it's minute. Mm. But everybody saw this is dramatic. We cannot just accept that. And thousands of men and women and children <laughs> even took to the streets on the 8th of March. Mm. This, is this is totally unacceptable. We talk about eight cases per year. Eight cases per year. And people took to the streets mm. because they saw this. This is this is completely unacceptable. Uh, so I think it's. I think. I, I, I mean, I've been working on the abortion issue for uh, since the Cairo conference. That was my eye opener. I didn't know it was so so controversial. And I was sitting in internal debates on the abortion paragraph, um, mm. and I got a complete shock. And I got a complete shock of what I could hear about the the arguments people gave. Uh, gave. And I thought this is something I want to work on. But I'm surprised to know that when this. In terms of numbers, it's tiny, the, the, the reduction, the fetal reduction uh, thing that is going to come into law probably. It's, it's tiny. It's eight per year. In other thousands of abortions, we're talking about eight per year. And people took to the streets. Mm. I think it's fantastic. I think they see even, you know, they see this, uh, this is unacceptable. It's, it's, an, it's an infringement on a right which is so important to so many. And every third woman on average has had an abortion, have been abortion through their lives in this country. And in the global sense, it's one per, per, per woman through the life. So it's a very common experience to have. And I think the reason why people took to the streets was anger based on pain. Because they know, I mean, every third woman, which means either yourself or your sister or your best friend or your mother or somebody close to you, everybody, we're all touched by it. We all have some experience in our own lives. Mm. Um, and I think that was the reason why people took to the streets. 
And I think it also relates to the stigma. We don't want to have this because it's so stigmatized. Don't give it another stigma. So I th I'm, I'm extremely encouraged. And also that it was not just people in my, my generation because I didn't know the importance. I was, I was a medical student in Oslo in the 1970s and people on Twitter were speaking. I couldn't understand what they were you know, making all this fuss about. So I had a late wake up <laughs> wake up on that and tried to make make up for it. So, mm. so um, but I think it's it's quite encouraging that people see the importance of those eight cases we're talking about. Uh, I'll answer the first question um, about how do these um, organisations then go and then you know talk to rural communities and how they interact with them. So I think it's contextual because we have some traditional leaders who through knowledge and information are understanding the importance of lowering the maternal rate, death rates. And this is through knowledge and telling them that, you know what, it's not, effect it's not something that women enjoy doing because they've been promiscuous. It's about a mother dying because of complications um, that arise from even just the process of childbirth. So most of the traditional healers, some are pro-abortion, but in a subtle way. Uh, because of stigma, they don't want to be termed pro-abortionist or things like that. So mm, when NGOs come through and when donors come through, they try and put it in the context of different places in Zimbabwe, for instance. Find out who's for and who's against. And then for those that are very, very keen on not wanting this at all, well, maybe try and find ways of you know, explaining to them in a way that they understand best, and then they can then tell the rest of the community why it's important to know sexual reproductive health rights knowledge and how to tackle it from the perspective of that community. Um, and um, it's, it's sad, but quite impressive that you have eight cases per year. Um, I think most of the hospitals and clinics in Zimbabwe try and hide information about um, abortion-related deaths because they know it can become a big issue because there are so many. And so people try and blame maybe, um, oh maybe it was a fibroid or it was cancer or, oh, no, she had a headache. And then the rest of the community knows what happened. But it's that stigma, again, that lets people not want to talk about this. And then it becomes a cycle where sex is so taboo to talk about, so we're still abortion or anything related to sexual reproductive health rights. So for us, I have never seen, um, except one organization called CATRE, that's been fighting for uh, sexual reproductive health rights. Um, they have been very open even about uh, menstruation and things like that, but the rest of the civil society is so scared uh, even to go out in the streets and protest or even to just raise a banner. They are so scared. So, um, yeah, it's different, very different from Norway, huh? Can I suggest that you check out the, the website of Catholics for Choice? Because there are Catholics and theolog theologians mm. who, on theologic ground, give argument for uh, access to safe and legal abortion on theological grounds. So it's important. I think it's, it's interesting that they are doing it um, on their own terms and using the language that other religious per persons can identify with. So, and, and there are other also ecumo ecumenical, ecumenical uh, uh, organizations that are dealing with abortion from a religious point of view. Uh, and with, and the, the, the journal of a Catholic choice is called Conscience. 
I think it's important because if you talk about conscience in the Norwegian context in terms of abortion, it we had the discussion about um, the rights of GPs to refuse to refer women. Remember that a few years ago? There was a suggestion that GPs, fastlegit, should be allowed to um, conscientiously object to referring women. And those doctors were called the conscience doctors. And it's kind of what? Are they the only ones with conscience? So that is the kind of rhetoric that we have in this country. If you have conscience, then you are against abortion. Um, but they turn it around and say your conscience should tell you to help women in situ such situations. And you should respect the conscience of women. Who when, when the conscience is telling a woman, I want to have an abortion now because of, because of my children, because of my partner, because of my own uh, life course, it's your conscience that tells her. So I think it's important to to see that there are different groups, although the, the, the vocal ones, the loud ones, they are, you know, the religion, use of religion against abortion, against even family planning, because it's, you know, it's, yeah, um, that whole story. Yeah. Yep, so we're running out of time. Can I just add one thing? Yeah. Um, I brought a, num a small number of copies of a book which describes um, the uh, the current process. It's barely lying there. My neighbor is renovating the basement, and there's some stain on it. <laughs> but if you don't mind that, you can pick it up. Um, because it's it says something about the Norwegian history of how we actually have, have, have succeeded so much in terms of reproductive health. And it also describes some of the global processes. It's from 2006, so the data, uh, it's not updated, but uh, the history is there, if you want to compare. Okay, um, sorry, I saw some hands just now, but we have run out of time, and feel free to ask Barrett and Shishti questions after. Um, oh, feel free to also ask me questions if you have any, and if I have answers, I will try. Uh, but thank you so much for coming, and we will invite you for more Africa conferences, seminars, uh, that happen every month. Feel free to come or ask questions on the Facebook group if you have any, and we'll get back to you. But thank you for coming.